Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Well, hi there and welcome to the Seven Figure Millennials podcast, where it is my job to help you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And really quick, if this is your first episode, I want to say welcome and I am super excited to have you here. And if you're returning, welcome back. I just want to say how much I appreciate you and I would give you a hug right now if I couldn't because you're what makes this show possible. But whether you're new or returning, today's guest is the one, the only, AJ Jacobs. And seriously, fasten your seatbelt for this introduction because it's so crazy. You probably won't even believe it, but I promise it's all true. So AJ Jacobs is an author, journalist, lecturer, and human guinea pig. He has written four New York Times bestsellers that combine memoir, science, humor, and a dash of self-help. Some of his guinea pig experiments turned New York Times bestsellers include The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World, where it chronicles the 18 months AJ spent reading the entire Encyclopedia Britannica in a quest to learn everything in the world. The other one is the year of living biblically, one man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible, where it tells AJ's attempt of following the hundreds of rules in the good book. And a third example is my life as an experiment, one man's humble quest to improve himself by living as a woman, becoming George Washington, telling no lies, and other radical tests, where AJ puts his life to the test and reports on the surprising and entertaining results. He is also an editor at large at Esquire magazine, a commentator on NPR, and a columnist for Mental Floss magazine. He has given several TED Talks, including ones about living biblically, creating a one-world family, and living healthily that have amassed over 10 million views. He has appeared on Oprah, The Today's Show, Good Morning America, CNN, The Dr. Oz Show, Conan, and The Colbert Report. And in this episode, you're going to hear so many things, but three things I want you to look out for. Number one, AJ's crazy and hilarious stories, including why he posed naked for Esquire magazine, trying to become the healthiest person alive, following the rules of the Bible for an entire year, reading the entire Encyclopedia Britannica, doing absolutely everything his wife asked for an entire month, and his journey of attempting to thank everyone responsible for bringing him his morning cup of coffee. Number two, look out for how you can use strategic chutzpah, he taught me how to pronounce that, to accelerate your growth. And number three, AJ's secrets to connecting with high profile people, including Daniel Radcliffe, David Blaine, Ludacris, and even Tim Berners-Lee, who is the inventor of the internet pretty much. (laughs) As a bonus, you'll also find out about AJ's experience on who wants to be a millionaire, how he almost got killed by Einstein, 
why he 3D printed a salt shaker shaped like his son, and some fun facts to impress your friends, like why Rene Descartes had a fetish for cross-eyed women, and at around 35 minutes, you're gonna find out about how many nipples opossums have. So you won't want to miss this, but one last thing before we dive in. I wanna give a pre-show listener shout-out to Marquise Fells, who left a review saying, I'm driving across the United States right now and decided to play an episode and was immediately hooked. The diverse experiences of the guests combined with Brandon's insightful questions and comments creates a very entertaining and inspiring show. Please keep doing what you're doing. So first of all, thank you for the kind words, Marquise. And second of all, if you are a returning listener and you haven't left a review yet, you can head to sevenfiguremillennials.com slash review to find out exactly how to do that. And if you choose to leave an honest review, I have a little thank you gift that I'd like to give you. And that's going to reveal exactly how I get incredible guests like AJ on the show and how you can get the connections you need to grow your business. And all those details can be found at sevenfiguremillennials.com slash review. And that's the number seven, not spelled out. So sevenfiguremillennials.com slash review. So with all of that said, please enjoy this adventure filled, action packed and fun fact ridden conversation with the one, the only AJ Jacobs. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mr. AJ Jacobs, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. So thrilled to be here. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah, of course. Well, I just wanted to start by telling the story about the very first time that I came across your work and, and just tell everybody listening that's hanging out with us today. So I was studying abroad in Sevilla in 2016, had my headphones in, listened to some podcasts walking around. I don't know what you were on. It might, might have been a TED radio hour or something, but you were sharing your story about stoning adulterers. And I remember like <laughs> laughing and like it was like literally one of those moments where like snot came out of my nose. And like I, I was like in the streets. And I'm like, I guarantee a bunch of Spaniards were looking at me. So I'm sure we'll get into your stories of the year of living biblically and all your work later, but I know you're all about gratitude. So I just wanted to start by publicly saying thank you from the bottom of my heart for the work that you do and the laughs that you bring to the world. And it's just an honor. And I'm super grateful to have you here today. Oh, well, right back at you. Uh, I'm grateful <laughs> to hear that I induced snot. That is, that snot. is a high compliment. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I thought we'd start in a fun spot. And this comes from your book, Thanks a Thousand. But it, towards the end, I saw a little bit of a research where you were talking about the factor of luck that has played in your in your life. And um, one of the things that you said is that you were ready to give up on writing when you kind of sent like a Hail, Hail Mary letter. And it kind of is what ended up allowing you to go on the path of as a writer and continuing on this. So, so what was that Harold Mary letter? And can you maybe set the scene and tell us what was going on in your life and why you were thinking about quitting writing? Sure. I was, uh, you know, I started out um, as a reporter at a tiny, tiny newspaper in California, writing about things like uh, sewage, local sewage. And, uh, you know, it was, um, I had dreams of being uh, at a bigger paper or writing books, but it was hard. It was hard. So I was about to give up. Um, but I sent a Hail Mary letter. I had this idea uh, to do a ridiculous humor book uh, based on the eerie similarities between Elvis Presley and uh, and Jesus Christ. Because at one <laughs> point in this life, Elvis decided that he, 
he might be the second coming. So I was like, maybe it's true. So I investigated and I found ridiculous similarities. Like, you know, uh, Jesus walked on water, Elvis surfed in blue Hawaii. So is this a coincidence or not? So I sent a Hail Mary letter to a bunch of agencies. I didn't know anyone anywhere. And it happened to land on the desk of an Elvis fan who was an, an, an agent at a powerful agency, ICM. And he said, you know what? I think this could make a book as, as absurd as it, as it is. So that is, uh, again, yeah, if he hadn't opened that, it's very possible I would be working at like a mid-level law firm right now or, or maybe, uh, you know, as a professor of psychology in, the, in a small college. That's crazy. So what happened from there? So the letter lands up on his desk and he's, he says this, ha- I'm an Elvis fan. So I'm, I'm actually okay with this. So you ended up, he ended up helping you get a job and that's how you started going down this path. And that was kind of like your sign from the universe or whatever you want to call it, that you should have continued writing. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. He helped me get a book deal. I actually got a book deal based on that idea, which came out. And, and actually, if I could tell one story that uh, I think is instructive, to show you know how much failure and rejection is part of life uh when i was trying to when he was trying to sell that book to publishers he's he called me and he said there's this one publisher who is interested but they want to see what you look like uh this was before google images before this you know i'm 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 older than millennial i'm gen x so uh he said, they just want to make sure you don't have two heads and that you can go on a talk show and promote the book. I said, all right, fine. So I went and I had a photo taken at Walmart and I sent it in. I get a call from him a day later saying, you know, they're going to pass. And I was like, what? I'm not good looking enough to be an author. I thought you could be, that's the whole point of being an author. You don't have to be good. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that was crushing. That was like ego, just, mm. uh, but another company decided to pick it up and publish it. And uh, so I always remember, you know, rejection is such a huge part of the, and I guess the happy ending, the little button on that is the company that did that to me uh, was called Crown. And I'm actually now writing a book for Crown. So uh yeah, I guess it's a little a little lesson and don't take things too personally, even when they are clearly very personal. That's hilarious. I'm going to jump way the heck ahead. I know in, in reading My Life is an Experiment, you talk about posing naked was one of the experiments you did. So did you have <laughs> did you have some like flashbacks when you were doing that experiment of posing naked? You were like, oh, my God, they're going to reject me again because of this traumatic event of, of sending your book into the publisher originally. <laughs> yeah, that one was also a bit traumatic. Uh, and that came out just quick background is I worked at Esquire magazine and the editor wanted to have an actress named Mary Louise Parker pose nude. And so I called her up and asked her if she would. And she said, yes, but only if the editor of the article also posed nude so that he could see what it's like. And I happen to be the uh, editor of the article. And my boss said, all right, well, take off your pants. So uh, they actually, they took a nude photo of me. They printed it in Esquire magazine alongside her photo. So again, there was a high level of humiliation because (laughs) no one wanted to see my picture. Uh, uh, But I think one, one key to just life in general is 
is taking a, a horrible situation and making it into uh, you know a funny story uh, uh, or or material. You know, I'm lucky that I'm a writer, so I can write about my humiliations. And uh, there's even something I I like to think of. You know, Schadenfreude. You ever hear that word, Schadenfreude? No. That means when you're happy at someone else's misery. So you see someone else get fired and you're filled with joy. I think that's a terrible emotion uh, that I try to avoid. But self-schadenfreude, uh, I think that's okay. If you are able to step back and look at, and I've, I've seen this in some of your guests who talk about failure as, as a good thing. If you can step back and just say, you know, listen, this is a ridiculous situation. I, I, I made mistakes. Other people uh, did things that were wrong, uh, but I'm not going to get too invested in it. Have a little Buddhist distance and, uh, and maybe even learn from it. Yeah. Well, you do it so, so well in your writing and it's just hilarious the way that you're able to take the edge off of things. And I'm sure when you're going through it, it's, it's not always the way that you paint it up to like the way that you massage it in the writing in the book and you make it funny, but maybe going through it, it's probably not the same way you would react to it after you wrote it. But th that was one thing I wanted to kind of ask about is the, the concept that you talk so openly and vulnerably about these experiences that you have. You talk about, you know, you know, some examples I wrote down is like, you, you have some OCD, you talk about being a shameless comparer, it's a reflex of born of insecurity, you mentioned this stuff all the time. And the reason I wanted to share with that is because I think it's so relevant that there are lots of people that understand and connect with you because you're willing to share those kinds of things. Yet, as much as we can intellectually understand, yeah, I'm supposed to be more vulnerable. I'm supposed to be more open. It's hard for people. So as somebody that has put their life on the line so much when it comes <laughs> to sharing, sharing these crazy experiments with the world, what, what advice would you give to somebody that understands the idea and the power of being more vulnerable and open, but hasn't quite crossed the line and being able to do that in their own lives yet? That's a great question. And uh, I mean, one thing I find in general is sometimes Faking it till you feel it is a really uh, powerful way to go through life. So let me get back to vulnerability in one second. But for instance, optimism and confidence, a lot of times I will, uh, I'll pretend to be confident. Uh, and, uh, and then after a couple of hours of acting as if I'm confident, my brain catches up. So maybe with vulnerability, even if, even if you have to force yourself like an actor almost to say, you know, to confess some of your weaknesses, maybe you should try it because then you'll become more comfortable with vulnerability. And I see vulnerability as often a strength that you are, when you are vulnerable, it, sh it sort of uh, sends the message that you're confident enough that you can express your vulnerabilities. And, um, and I know some, uh, uh, some entrepreneurs and I don't necessarily recommend this, but they'll start their pitches with five things that are wrong with this pitch. Five, mm. five biggest weaknesses of my business model, just to show they know, they know their weaknesses and they're okay with it and they own them. And then they'll say, you know, here's what I'm going to do about them. Uh, so yeah, I would, uh, I would almost, no, it doesn't come naturally to most people, but if you force yourself to be vulnerable, it can have huge dividends for your mental health, for connecting with other people, and for showing off this, con this sort of paradoxical con confidence. 
Yeah. I think that's like a huge underlying theme in, in all of your work too, is the fact that you view yourself as an experimenter. And I think that that takes an edge off of things too, right? Because if somebody's like, I'm going to shift and change my whole life and be super vulnerable all the time, that's really intimidating. But like, if you kind of take the approach that it seems that you've been able to take your life, it's like, Hey, let me just give this a shot. See what the heck happens. If it sticks, it sticks. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But as a result of trying it, you're going to at least learn something from it. I love that. Yes. You, I think you nailed that. I think it, it's a much better way to go through life is saying, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's the end all be all, but let's give it a shot and see what happens. And in fact, uh, I love the the word essay because essay is, uh, I think Montaigne, this French writer uh, coined the term and it means attempt. It's an attempt. So that really takes the, uh, the edge off, as you say, but you know, this is my attempt. I'm not saying it's the, the perfect thing. And in fact, I, I know writers um, who really like to stress uh, that get out that first draft, uh, just get out that really crappy first draft and acknowledge it's crappy. I have uh, someone I know has a, they will literally title the first draft, like, you know, shitty first draft <laughs> uh, and then shitty first draft two or shitty second draft just to lower the um, the pressure. And I love that. Yeah. And this is another, we stumbled upon a, another common theme throughout your content that, that you've identified, but that I, I kind of saw going through your stuff as well is the fact that once you start behaving in a certain way, your thinking eventually catch up, catches up with you and that you start acting the way, you start thinking the way that you begin to behave. So any any chance you want to talk a little bit more about this topic? Because I know this is a common thread and really important in your understanding of experimentation. Oh, yeah. I think it's huge. This idea of sort of fake it till you feel it, fake it till you make it, acting as if. Uh, and I'll give you just one example of many. Uh, I remember I was writing a book on health trying to be the healthiest person alive. And I was just, I woke up every morning feeling a little overwhelmed, filled with despair because I'm not a doctor. I'm not, uh, and it's such a huge topic. It's like writing a book on the universe. You know, how do you do it? So I would, I would wake up and be uh, filled with angst, but I would pretend I was confident and I would act as if I would call the top doctors in the field. I called Sanjay Gupta and, you know, asked to, interview them, or I would, I would force myself to call the book publisher and say, you know, I think this book is, uh, this book has real potential. Let's, uh, let's have a big party when it comes out and serve kale martinis. And, you know, I, I had all these big plans. And after a couple of hours of acting as if I was confident, I, I, my mind caught up with my actions. And there's a lovely phrase, I wish I could take credit for it, I think it's by the the guy who uh, started Habitat for Humanity. But the phrase is, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. Easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. So start out by acting and then your mind will catch up. So I'm curious to get your opinion on this because I had somebody that I interviewed on the show. And at the time of this recording, it hasn't aired yet, but his name is Blair Dunkley. And one of the things that he he does, he's a profiler. And so he can listen to someone's language patterns. And in a few seconds, identify some 
of the subconscious narratives that you may have running just based on the way that you think. And one of the things that he said to me when he profiled me is that he, he sensed that I had a fake until you make it kind of attitude to go through some of the things that, that I, I have in my career. But he said that the negative component to faking until you make it is sometimes you make it like what, once you've made it, but then you still have that narrative that you're, you're faking it all the time. And so like, you need to replace that narrative. So have you ever found that to be true? Is that like you fake your way to making it, you become that thing, but you, your mind still doesn't quite believe it because you had to like fake your way there. Is that, does that even make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I mean, I, I feel that that's usually called imposter syndrome. Like you, sure. <laughs> you don't believe that you deserve it. And I suffer from imposter syndrome, uh, Sometimes I think it's just very human nature, but I don't believe that that particular um, problem has is linked to fake it till you make it. I actually think that if you do fake it till you make it, if you really commit, like you, it's not just fake it till you make it. It's fake it till you feel it. Like you mm. are actually changing your mind by these actions. And I saw that when I wrote a book about gratitude, uh, again, I would wake up. I think my default mode in life is kind of the grumpy Larry David, uh, uh, you know, sort of pessimist. And I love Larry David's show. Uh, he, I think he's great, but I, it's not a fun mindset. You don't want to be inside Larry David's head. So I... A part of this book about gratitude was to try to change that. I would force myself to write thank you notes and, or call people, cold call them and thank them for these random things. And as I'm saying it, it's it's affecting my mind and it's saying, you know what? This really is amazing that that someone spent this time making a, a beautiful logo for my coffee shop, and uh, and then you start to believe. So so when you do it enough and with commitment, it changes your mind. So it's a sort of a way to get over that imposter syndrome almost. Yeah. I love that. And you just mentioned something there that was a topic that I knew that we had to discuss because this is something that I'm absolutely obsessed with. You kind of just briefly mentioned in passing there cold calling someone. And one of the things that came really relevant uh, in, in going through your content, it's like you've cold called, cold emailed tons of people and you've had incredible conversations from every, everyone from Daniel Radcliffe to Ludacris to David Blaine to Tim <laughs> Berners-Lee who invented the World Wide Web and not to mention all the people that helped you with your, your you know, the, the content that you put inside of your books. And my life has absolutely changed by learning how to reach out to people and understanding that at the end of the day, everybody's human and they want to learn how to connect. So as somebody that is connected with all these people and sent all these cold emails and made all these cold calls, what is kind of stuck out as your approach today? Like if you're going to reach out to somebody that you don't know, how do you go about approaching, uh, no, creating a new connection? I love this topic. Uh, I don't talk about it much. And also, I want to hear yours since I think, you know, you you have a lot. So let me tell you like three uh, three nuggets of, uh, of advice that I have in terms of cold calling, and then we can go to you. But yeah. I guess one would be always think about what does the other, what was the other person get out of it? So try to frame it in a way, you know, if I'm reaching out to, uh, as you say, uh, you know, I'm writing a book about puzzles. I, I reach out to the most famous 
crossword puzzle maker in the world. You know, what can I offer him? And he's, you know, well, I want to get his, I want to get his, the word out about him. I want to, so frame it as like you're helping them get the word out. Uh, also, I think st starting the letter or email or call with really specific uh, uh, positive feedback to them. So not just saying I'm a big fan of your work, but saying, you know, I I loved that scene in that movie you did in 2014 where, you, you know, you wore the sequins jumpsuit, it, you know, just really specific to show that you've done your research. Uh, another one is being creative in, uh, in finding ways to link to them, because I do think, uh, you know, just having received thousands or hundreds of emails myself, if there's a link, if it's, you know, even if it's a, a link like, you know, my cousin is, uh, you know, went to college with your wife's barber, even if it's like, you know, really dis distant, there is something more appealing about having that connection. And I once wrote a book about uh, uh, what's called the world family tree, how everyone on earth is related. And there are these websites where you can figure out how you are related to someone. And often they're ridiculously complicated. They're like, you know, for instance, this is a true fact. Barack Obama is my fifth great aunt's husband's brother's wife's seventh great nephew. So I, when I was approaching people for this book, um, I would say, I know this sounds weird, but I just want to let you know that I'm your, you know, 12th cousin, three times removed. And I would love to talk to you. Uh, and here's what I want to talk about. And, you know, 20% of the people were, I'm sure, um, appalled and wanted to, you know, call security. But <laughs> 80% actually responded positively, like, oh, my God, that's so cool. How did you know that? So finding creative ways to connect with people uh, in that opening call or email, I think, is, uh, is, is helpful. So those are just some random ones. Um, but I want to hear some of your ideas. Yes, I am more than happy to share. But before I go into that, one quick question is I've, I've wondered this because I've, I've heard you talk about all your relatives and all the people that you're related to. So what, what specific site, is there a site that we can go to where we can type in our name and the name of somebody else and it generates that tree? Or how can we go about emailing them and telling us, telling them about our how we're related. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, there's a couple of sites. One is called genie, G-E-N-I.com. Another is called Wikitree, W-I-K-I-T-R-E-E.com. And it is possible you can put your name in and then put their name in and see how you're connected. Um, that is if you're already on the tree, you might have to uh, do a little work and sort of load your grandparents and great grandparents' names in so that you can get connected and see how you're connected to other people. But it's a fun, I mean, I love it. It's just, uh, and my hope is to remind people that we are all connected that because there's such tribalism, such us versus them thinking in the world oh, yeah. right now. And this is just one small strategy that I hope will remind people that this is not a good way to yeah. uh, go through life. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I am absolutely going to leverage that and test that out myself. But yeah, I, I, I would love to 
share some things that have worked with me and maybe we can kind of combine our approaches over after all the, the years of, of me testing. But first of all, I just want to say that I 100% agree with everything that you said, that the biggest mistake that most people make when they reach out to someone is they make it about them. Like, hi, my name is Brandon Fong and I have this cool show and I want you, AJ, on my show and I, this is how cool I am, blah, blah, blah. And like, to be honest, like if I send AJ that email, like he doesn't know why he should even care to begin with, right? So like, that's the biggest mistake I see people make on LinkedIn and their emails all over the place is they make it about why they're so cool. And it just pushes them off. So hundred percent do very specific research, listen to a specific podcast episode. Like AJ said, like loved episode 157 specifically liked it when you talked about X, Y, Z. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's been truly impactful for me. So that's like very, very important is that you set the tone correctly for that. A few things I'll add on to what you say, AJ. So I have a three-part process. I call it the, the hook, which is that first part we talked about the irresistible offer and the no oriented question at the end. So the thing that I like to do is I like to show that I did work in advance for someone. So that's something that I show that I've invested inside of the relationship. So it's like, Hey, I came up with three particular topics that I think would be interesting for me to talk about on your podcast, along with uh, a bunch of, um, you know, ways that are like a gift I want to give to your audience worth $47. And I put it together in a Google doc for you. So like, so that level of preparation and advance showing that you are willing to invest first really sticks out. And then the, the last part is this is something I learned from Chris Voss, who wrote the book, Never Split the Difference. If you're listening to this, he's an ex FBI hostage negotiator that like, he's the guy that's on the phone when there's a lunatic in the basement of a bank, and he's about to blow up the whole place. He was trying to talk them down from it. But anyways, uh, I want to get back to AJ here. But the, the explaining this last component of the emails that I use is the hook showing why it's it, why I reached out to them specifically, the irresistible offer showing that I put together work in advance for them. Usually it's in the form of like a Google Doc. And then where the Chris Voss thing comes in is that he taught me about this concept inside of the book um, called the no oriented question. And every single day we have a finite amount of yeses that we can give in a day because what, what happens when you say yes? It means you're giving away your time, your energy. Your, your money, you're giving away something, but it's a lot easier to say no. It's a lot, you feel a lot more secure, more in control when you say no. And the problem with so many email outreaches is they're like, hey, I have this thing. Do you want to find out more about it? Let me just push it in your face. You know, and it's kind of like you're, you kind of back off, you feel insecure or not secure. So asking a no oriented question is a lot more effective for my testing. So, so going back to my example is like, I put together this Google doc that has all these different ways I can help add value to you. 100% up to you, AJ, but would you be opposed to me sending over the Google Doc for you to check out? And then that's it. Don't, don't, don't put anything else after that because it shows that you did work in advance and then you give it their choice to lean in and see if they're interested in the relationship instead of saying, hey, do this thing. So I, I, I want to make sure we get back to you, but hopefully you can maybe take some component of that and what you do for reaching out to people because it's helped me tremendously for opening the doors oh, to incredible man, relationships. I love that. That is so smart. Uh, yeah, no, those are great. Uh, I love that you've given this so much thought and uh, and and tried things out. I had one other one other tip that occurred to me while yeah, go for it. we were talking it, um, and, and maybe it's obvious, but you know, providing social proof. So yeah, here when I'm in asking people to uh, if I can interview them for my puzzle book, I say, you know, here's here's my idea, and here are some of the people I've already interviewed. And, uh, you know, Will Shorts, for instance, who's like the most famous puzzler, he's the editor of the New York Times Crossword Puzzle. So I know from my own experience, if I see, oh, well, they've interviewed, you know, they've interviewed John Grisham. Well, then I guess uh, I should do it, too. So and, and the the good thing about that is, you, you know, you just need that one first person to say yes. And then you can use that 
in your in your email. Yeah, we we could. I don't want to spend the whole interview on this, but this is like what I'm so passionate about. But it's it's so exciting to be able to to do exactly what you said. And another thing that you can do is you can use uh, LinkedIn to search mutual, people's mutual connections, so you can see if you have a mutual connection in common with them. That's another thing you can do. Um, and then there was one other thing I was going to say. Um, oh, a small tweak in language in, in what you said. I don't know, maybe you could test this out yourself, AJ, but I found that if you use really strong language in an outreach, it's 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 reacted strongly against you. It's like if you say, I, I've interviewed all these people compared to saying, I feel so blessed to say that I've interviewed X, Y, and Z. And you know, just frame it from the place of gratitude instead of how cool I am that I've done all these people, that that's another way that you can make the message land a little bit softer instead of just bragging about yourself is just say, right. I'm so incredibly grateful or so blessed to say that I've, you know, these people helped me out already and would be honored to have you contribute as well or something along those lines. But that's just I love that. Be, yeah. Be riffing. <laughs> that's some great, great yeah. ideas. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah, of course. So, so we'll, we'll move on this topic so that people can be like, okay, we'll, we'll talk about something else. Uh, so I want to, to talk about something else that I came across that I think is actually kind of related to this whole connection thing. But, um, one of the things you wrote a LinkedIn article a while back that said your number one favorite business lesson from all of history is something called strategic chutzpah. Which is that how you yes. say it? Chutzpah? Chutzpah? It is a chutzpah. No, you gotta chutzpah. get you totally gotta be like it. an old Jewish man with the. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, if you could tell us the story about Kevin Ruse uh, reaching out to you and what strategic chutzpah is. <laughs> Nicely done, Brandon. You are. Thank you. Practically uh, a member of Reform Judaism now. Great. Uh, yeah, Kevin Ruse is a remarkable guy who is now super successful. He is a columnist at the New York Times uh, who writes about tech. And he just came out with a book like yesterday uh, called Future Proof, uh, how to make sure that you still have a job and robots don't take over. Uh, But I, when he first reached out to me, this was maybe what, 15 years ago? And I was working on a, a kind of a strange book called The Year of Living Biblically, where I was trying to follow all the rules of the Bible as uh, literally as possible. And uh, he was uh, he, he was a freshman at the college where I went to, which is Brown. And he reached out, he emailed me and using a lot of the techniques we talked about, he wrote a very funny uh, letter, very specific. He's like, I loved when you did this. Uh, and he said, can I, I want to you know, be an intern. I want to learn how to be a writer. And I was, I was like, well, uh, I had been struggling because one of the, the worst parts of the Bible is that, that there are these, that Hebrew slaves, like back in the, you know, back in the ancient times, you were allowed to have sort of these biblical slaves. And I was like, that, I don't know what to do, but maybe if he would be willing to be my intern slash biblical slave, then (laughs) uh, that could be interesting. So he did. He came for the summer. First of all, crazy hard worker, like just great spouting ideas all the time. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. And, uh, And at the end of uh, uh, the summer, I took him on a little trip, like a sort of a thank you trip to Jerry Falwell's church, which was a very conservative church in Virginia. And and he found it so fascinating that he decided 
what if he transferred from Brown, which is super liberal university, at, and spent a semester at Jerry Falwell's Liberty University, one of the most conservative, like no hand-holding, no, uh, no R-rated movies, just like super uh, conservative Christian college. And, uh, and I helped him get an agent and helped him get a book deal. And it was all because he had this chutzpah at the beginning to just send me an email out of the blue. And again, using those techniques, instead of going through the college alumni, uh, you know, internship program, when I might not have ever seen his email, you know, he reached directly out to me and he said, here's what I want to do. Here's what I like about you. And, and it worked. Uh, And so his chutzpah paid off and big time. He's super successful. Uh, I mean, you, you, of course, you have to have a baseline of talent and, and drive. So uh, you can't just have chutzpah. But it, I think it is a really useful tool. And uh, correct and me chutzpah, wrong, by the way, for, sorry, just to back up, chutzpah me is uh, sort of the Hebrew Yiddish equivalent of cojones. Uh, as you know, having some uh, some courage, bravery, balls, what have you. Yeah, that 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 is awesome. So so it's it's also how I got my start in in entrepreneurship. Is I I sent a very very similar email, and that's why I'm passionate about this kind of stuff as well. But that's why I, I thought it was so cool that you had that in your background as well, and you were the first hand. Uh, recipient of uh, of somebody that you know did their research ahead of time and reached out to you in a meaningful way and and was able to kind of leverage that experience and and working with you to to really do some incredible things in the world so yeah. that that was really cool so on the exact opposite of this coin I wanted to flip it so um, also in your book uh, thanks a thousand you talk about all the people that you're you're so grateful for and one of them is a guy by the name of Rob Weisbach I might not might not be pronouncing that correctly yes, uh, no, but but you, you like so so we talked about somebody that you were able to mentor and I know that Rob <laughs> just from the footnotes was somebody that was really relevant to to helping you get your foot off the uh, your your career path off the ground. So um, you said without him, you wouldn't have been a writer, which would have been a pretty big deal because you've, you've written quite amount, uh, a decent amount of stuff. So tell us a little bit about the story about meeting Rob and why it was so impactful in your career. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I am a huge fan of Rob Weisbach. And he was the editor uh, who bought that very first book, the one about uh, Jesus and Elvis, oh, okay. and, <laughs> and published it. And he Right now, he's an agent manager and brilliant, so um, I highly recommend him. Uh, but he is uh, he was he was the one who published that first book, and then he published my first actual book that was book length and not sort of like one of those little cash register novelty books. But he um, he was he was great in many ways. One of them was just pushing me because I would. When I, I I wanted to write a book and I would come up with idea after idea, and he was brutally honest. He'd say, "I don't know." One of his critiques was always like, "All right, well, I I get the idea, but what's what's on page forty? Like, yeah, you know, maybe it would be a fun article, but really think deeply about what is the whole structure, what is going to happen." And it took me a long time to convince him to that uh i should write another book and you know it took me who knows dozens of ideas that he just shot down 
before I found the one that that actually did he took and it did work. You know, it became a New York Times bestseller. And that was the one about where I read the encyclopedia from A to Z uh, and tried to learn everything in the world. And that was when there were still encyclopedias. Uh, Wikipedia was was around, but just, you know, it hadn't driven out all of the encyclopedias. Yeah, love that. It's so cool to see at the core of any success story, there's always a team of people that have supported someone. So it's it's really cool to just shed light on that and be grateful and realize that if you really want to go places, it's about the relationships that you you have and you've been able to maintain. So so that's that's awesome. And since you kind of naturally transitioned to there anyways, very simple question. But uh, for as somebody that has read the Encyclopedia Britannica, I know you've probably uh, asked this question a decent amount. But um, what are the main things that have stuck with you as as the the, the fun facts that that you want to make sure that people understand or maybe just the co- the kooky ones? Well, yeah, one of the problems was I think my brain and maybe most human brains work where the the stuff that sticks is not necessarily the the most useful or profound stuff. It's things like, you know, um, uh, opossums have 13 nipples that uh, arranged <laughs> in a circle. That's that's in there. Uh, the philosopher Rene Descartes had a fetish for cross-eyed women that's stuck in my brain. Uh, but I will say, in addition to the random weird facts, I do think that it gave me some wisdom. It gave me some some perspective. And one of the big points that I try to remind myself every day is, you know, we are often we often have nostalgia and talk about the good old days. Oh, wasn't it great before this? Uh, and you know, our former president ran on this whole idea of you know, make America great again. But when you read 33,000 pages of history, you realize the good old days were not good. The good old days were horrible. They were uh, dangerous. It was much more violent. They were, you know, the the life expectancy was, you know, in the 30s up to like 400 years ago. Uh, they were sexist, racist, homophobic. They were smelly. They were like, you can't <laughs> believe just, you know, I live in New York City and I you know, would read about what life was like there, like literally. And I, I hope no one's eating breakfast or whatever, but horse manure piled up chest high on the sides of streets is just repulsive. So uh, I realize we have tremendous challenges right now, you know, COVID, um, the environment, racism, but I I never want to forget that the good old days were not good, that we, that progress has happened. We have made progress. We've lifted billions of people out of poverty in the last 50 years. And, uh, and so that, to me, it's very motivating. It's very motivating. It's not like everything's going to hell. No, if we work, we can make things better. And and actually, I have a three-word phrase that I sometimes use when I'm particularly down, which is um, uh, surgery without anesthesia. Because <laughs> up until I, I maybe 100, 130 years ago, that's you had to have surgery without anesthesia. And if you want to be horrified, read the first-person accounts of what it was like to have surgery with, you know, maybe just a belt of whiskey. Uh, It was just, you know, unimaginably uh, painful. So yes, 
I, I feel that it's important for our own optimism and motivation to remember. Yeah. And that, that was another huge takeaway that I had from Thanks a Thousand. And maybe we could talk about this a little bit too, is that you were just talking about having horse manure piled up to your chest. And one of the <laughs> things that I remember you saying is that it's, it's the reason why gratitude is sometimes so hard to maintain is because as, as easy it is to pay attention to like the big raises that we get or the important things that happen in our life. Sometimes the things that you need to be grateful for are the things that are invisible. The fact that we don't have to go down the street and have piles of, of horse manure and that kind of stuff. So anything you want to add to that in like in your gratitude journey and thanking a thousand people uh, in, in how you approach thanking the invisible in your life? Oh yeah. I love that. And I think that's true. I think, you know, the huge majority of things we should be grateful for are invisible to us. Uh, and so the, the premise of the book, as you know, was I, I wanted to thank a thousand people who had anything to do with my morning cup of coffee. And again, like 990 of them were invisible in that I never thought about, oh, yeah, someone had to drive the coffee beans uh, from the warehouse. Someone had uh, someone had to design the little uh, opening in the top of the cup. Someone had to design one of my favorite words I learned was a zarf, Z-A-R-F, which is the official word for that cardboard uh, sleeve that goes over your coffee cup to keep your fingers from burning. And And there was a guy in Seattle who actually, you know, he was picking his kids up from school and he spilled coffee on his fingers. He's like, there's got to be a better way. And he he invented the Zarf. And so just remembering. The great name too. It is a great. And he didn't come up with that. That's actually like, it's an ancient, there used to be Zarfs of gold and uh, and ivory from ancient China and India. Uh, but the, but yeah, like you said, so much of it is is invisible. And just reminding ourselves of that is a great way to fight what what you refer to as the negative bias. This, we are built as humans to notice the negative. So if you hear a hundred compliments and a single insult, then sadly, what do you remember is the insult. And, and um, scientists will tell you it's probably because from an evolutionary point of view, it was great. You needed to notice the negative. You needed to find... Remember that one poisonous mushroom. When you heard uh, a rustle in the grass, you needed to assume that it was the tiger coming to eat you. Uh, that's how you survive. But we don't live in the same environment anymore, but we're stuck with this negative bias. And uh, it's really just bad for your mental health. So fighting it is something I try to do every day. Almost every moment of every day is just fighting the negative bias. Yeah, I love that. This is going to be super, super abrupt. But have you heard of? Do you know what Kopi Luwak is? Have you ever heard of Kopi Luwak? Oh, is that the? Uh, I think it's the coffee that is uh, passed through uh, a sort of a cat-like creature in Indonesia. Yeah, it's like it's, it it's a it's called a civet. Uh, I think it's what it's called. And when when I traveled to, to Bali, I, I was thinking of you not necessarily while I was drinking the poop coffee, but like, that's like, it just a, a, a fun fact for someone listening is that uh, it's like the world's most expensive coffee because these civets are eating these coffee cherries and then their stomach processes the, 
the cherry a little bit differently. And not only that, the civet is choosing the particular kind of cherry that they want to eat. Therefore, the quality <laughs> of the beans are higher. And so there's this whole industry of finding civet poop on the floor of forests and turning that into coffee. So I was just maybe, how maybe was that, I've never had it. I've never it was it was um I don't know if I have a refined enough coffee palate to understand <laughs> the 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 differences. It tasted kind of like normal coffee to me, but but yeah, I think it it definitely you know, that's just one of the things, again, just going back to being grateful for the smallest things is the fact that, like you say in the book, like every coffee bean travels 2,500 miles across the equator and is nine month long journey and this crazy stuff. And so understanding the, you know, the zarfs and being grateful for everything along the way is just, it was, it was a really fun thing to see your journey and doing that. So that was awesome. Oh, well, thank you. So uh, I don't remember what you specifically said in the last part of what we were just talking about that made me think about this, but you had mentioned dealing with haters uh, or some some component of like dealing with negativity or remember, right. that's what you were saying. You were saying remembering the, po- the, the negative things more than the positive things. And that was another thing that I was really curious to, to ask you about is because your work is so public, you know, you produce these crazy experiments that can sometimes be considered controversial by some people. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard to maybe read uh, like all the negative feedback that you're getting. So just kind of curious. And I, I think this is also in your uh, t- uh, section about George Washington in my life as an mm. experiment of like how to ignore gossip. So as, as someone that is public and you have people giving feedback and leaving comments and telling you how, how you look on, on certain videos, how, how, have, how have you come to understand uh, and, and be able to ignore that stuff or how do you deal with haters? I guess the, sing- right. the succinct I, question. <laughs> I mean, I, it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle, but I do believe my, th- my, my skin has gotten a lot thicker. And, and I think that I'm, it's a good thing to have the thick skin because uh, you are going to, whenever you put something out there, there's nothing that everyone loves there's going to be a proportion of people who hate it. And, you know, there'll be a lot of people who are sort of indifferent, but there will be people who will hate it. And, uh, and that's just a fact of life. And just realizing that, you know what? So what? They hate it. Uh, they don't have to read it. They don't have to listen to your podcast, whatever. Uh, but what keeps me going is try- reminding myself, that my work uh, is valuable to some people. And, you know, just remembering the wonderful emails I've gotten saying, you know, this, I was depressed and I read your book and it lifted me out of the depression. So uh, almost being, being a little less self-obsessed, I find is very helpful because if I was all completely obsessed with my own happiness, Maybe I wouldn't, you know, take a risk and and write something because I know that someone might. But uh, if you think of it like, you know, that this content might help someone this. So it's almost my uh, it's almost my responsibility to get it out there. And it's not all about me, but it's still a struggle. I mean, you know, if I I still, uh, you know, do not like getting trolled or slammed on Twitter or whatever. But, uh, but again, as I get older and I, I, I've learned to tolerate it much better. I interviewed someone last week. Uh, his name is Carl Honore and he has a Ted talk and he has, his concept is all about the power of slow. 
And he had mm-hmm. mentioned some quote that I think was really funny. It was basically like in your twenties, you spend your time worrying about what other people think about you. As you get older and you're in your forties, you realize you don't care that much. And when you're in your sixties, you realize nobody cared at all. <laughs> it's like, it's really, it's really not going to impact. Like there, people are, you, you think that people are sitting and thinking about you, but they probably spent two seconds writing that thing that you're going to let destroy you for a little bit. Uh, when in, when in reality, they are just like picking their nose or having breakfast. So they're not thinking about it anymore. So don't let them, don't let them eat you up with it. <laughs> exactly. I like that. Yeah. Don't let them take up real estate in your brain. I mean, that is, uh, uh, that they, they don't deserve to be there. Yeah. So on a similar topic, uh, you've, you've also the, you, you have the, a TV show was produced on your book called living biblically. I know, I know, uh, from previous interviews, that was something that you're not a huge fan of. <laughs> uh, what, what was the show? You, you've also had crazy things where you've produced, uh, the world's largest family reunion. And so you're, you've done lots of these public, uh, you know, big exposures, and sometimes they don't always turn out the way that you want them to turn out. So, kind of curious to maybe talk about how you handled those situations sure. and how you think about it moving forward. Well, uh, yeah. So I wrote that book about living by all the rules of the Bible in modern day New York and trying to learn what is maybe good about biblical wisdom and what is not. Uh, and, uh, and I loved it. I loved the experience and, and the book and it had been Options by Hollywood, uh, like had gone through like fourteen different actors and directors, and from you know everyone. Marlon Wayans at one point was attached to play me. Uh, it was uh, very bizarre, but the uh, then it finally a couple of years ago they turned it into a TV show on CBS called Living Biblically. Uh, Now, we've been talking about positivity and gratitude. So let me start (laughs) by saying how great, what a overall a fun experience it was. I got to go out to LA and meet the writers and the actors, the guy who played me, who was very handsome. He was on it, what he was on a Mad Men, not John Hamm. He was, he played the boyfriend of Peggy on Mad Men. Uh, And I, uh, you know, I got to bring my kids and we got to watch a TV show films and have the free craft services uh, and the people were wonderfully nice. So focusing on that is is important. That said, I was not a fan of how the show came <laughs> out. The show I thought was not because it was um, uh, it was on CBS uh, so it was really going sort of for the biggest, lowest common denominator. And uh, I mean, I knew we were in trouble when in in the book, I, I literally follow the rules. And the Bible says, for instance, you cannot shave the corners of your beard. I didn't know where my beard, the corners were. So I just let the whole thing grow. And I looked like you know, <laughs> Gandalf. I looked crazy. And uh, CBS, after they greenlit the show, said, no, he can't have a beard because that might uh, scare viewers. And so like, you had no input. You couldn't just be like, this isn't going to fly. Like, let's not even like you, you, you basically were removed of your rights for giving feedback on that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, I could give feedback, but no one listened. I mean, unless oh. you are uh, Stephen King, uh, when you uh, sell your book to Hollywood, that's it. You are done. You are. I mean, I think Hemingway, Fitzgerald or Hemingway said 
you, know, you just got to drive up to the border of California and throw your book over and drive away uh, because you have no control over it. So, yes. Um, and again, that was an exercise in just finding the positive and realizing, you know what? I'm incredibly lucky they made a TV show, even though I, I didn't like the TV show. What the hell? I got, you know, I got some money, not not a crazy amount of money, actually, uh, but uh, some money. And I had this wonderful experience and met interesting people. But yeah, I was actually so relieved when it was canceled. I was like, I let out a huge sigh of relief. It's like, yes. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm I'm glad that you were able to find the the bright side of things. And it's just that was something I wanted to make sure I talked about is that you know, things that always turn out the way you, you want them to. And so tell, tell us about the world's largest family reunion and what was going on in your head that day. And tell us a little bit about what the goal was behind that. Yeah, well, that was for the book that I wrote about the, the global family and how we're all related. And, and I feel that uh, a book ideally should have an interesting goal that you're sort of striving to achieve. And I said, well, since we're all one big family, what if I threw a family reunion for my entire family, all seven and a half billion cousins? And <laughs> uh, so I did. And I was in immediately way over my head because I'm a writer. I'm not like, you know, an event organizer, especially massive events. But uh, it took me on the detour for six months, but I, I was able to pull it off. We had it was called the Global Family Reunion. It was in 2015, and it had 4,000 people come to the this uh, fairground in Queens, and we had 40 simultaneous reunions around the world with a total of 10,000 people. And we had speakers like, uh, you know, Dr. Oz and Henry Louis Gates, and uh, we had uh, just the most random. We had Sister Sledge. Uh, I don't know if your listeners are too young for that, but they sang We Are Family. Uh, so it was, um, and again, it was an overwhelming and super st stressful experience for me. One, I was in over my head. I didn't know what I was doing. So the learning curve was like vertical. And then also this just the day of, you know, when you, at least when I throw a party, even for like 20 people, it's. I'm not generally having a great time because I'm worried about, you know, who's mixing with who and are we, is there enough dip? So imagine that, but for 4,000 people, I was just so super stressed. But the payoff, the positive was I got so much feedback and still get feedback from people saying, you know, that was, I still think about that day and, and meeting all these people and knowing that they were distant relatives and, uh, and hearing these speakers. So it was, uh, you know, hopefully it was worth it in the end. Yeah. You had some, you had some chutzpah to make that happen. There you go. <laughs> Nicely done, Brandon. Great, great accent too. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. Um, so another thing I wanted to cover is the topic of, and this is, I'm sure a topic you get asked a lot. So hopefully I can, I can spin this in a, a slightly different way, but one of the prominent characters in all of your books is your incredible Saint Life wife, 
cool, <laughs> uh, J- Julie. Um, and, and she's, she's put up with a lot of your crazy experiments. She lives a life where I'm sure you have like a tape recorder or something to kind of capture all the things as you go throughout all these crazy experiments. And I officially got married last year. Uh, so, hey. so that's, that's, it's exciting, but we've had to postpone our, our wedding twice now like the actual celebration twice because of COVID. So it's actually around, around the corner. So this is a partly a selfish ask, but also I think it's really relevant to the people in the audience that are in serious relationships. So as, as somebody that has had a spouse, that's been incredibly supportive and been along all these crazy experiments with you, any advice that you would give to husbands in the audience or even wives in the audience, when it comes to creating uh, relate uh, an incredible supportive relationship, even if you're doing crazy things and being an entrepreneur, creating a business, or right. living a year as a Bible. <laughs> oh. Well, yes. I, uh, I mean, my for what it's worth, some of my wisdom is, uh, first of all, you're right. I'm very grateful uh, to my wife, and she is very saintly. Um, uh, so that's on the record. Uh, I would <laughs> say one piece of advice that I loved that I got from a couple that had been married, like, you know, 60 years or something. Uh, I said, what is the secret? And the, the man said, uh, I have tooth marks on my tongue. I was like, what? <laughs> tooth marks on my tongue. It's, oh, he bites your tongue. So you don't have to say everything that comes into your mind. If your spouse or partner is annoying you, you know, sometimes, well, it's better to just hold your tongue, especially in the moment. Maybe like two days later, you can say, you know, that thing that you, you know, where you, you, you didn't wash the dishes, you know, can we... Uh, revisit that and come up with a better system. All right, so tooth marks on the tongue, number one. Number two, um, I would say, you know, we all overestimate what we put into the relationship. So if you think that you're putting 50% in, whether it's emotionally or just, you know, in terms of chores around the house, you're probably putting in 30%. So Put in like 60 or 70 or 80 percent to account for that bias, and then you'll be putting in 50 percent. Because, yeah, in my mind, I am doing like so much more. But I know if I step back in reality, I'm like I am probably lower than 50 percent. So, yeah, just be aware of that bias and and go over and above. Um, Another one I got, I interviewed George and Barbara Bush for one of my books. I'm, I, I'm pretty liberal Democrat, but I, I respected them. And, uh, and I remember Barbara said, yeah, tr- you know, treat, treat your partner or spouse like you would, um, uh, you know, don't take them for granted. Treat them like, like a house guest. Treat them like, you know, a friend you're trying to impress because, Otherwise, you can just eventually take them for granted. And uh, um, and let me give you one other piece of advice that I think is funny. I don't actually do it, but my <laughs> former boss, the editor-in-chief of Esquire, had this uh, theory uh, where he, he called it the seven-minute secret to marriage. And he said uh, it was uh, something like um, every morning for three minutes, look deeply into your spouse's eyes and focus solely on them like every word just listen and be like they're the most fascinating person on earth so that's three minutes in the morning then do it uh you know what was it two minutes at lunch you know or in the afternoon or when you get home from work and then two minutes 
at night do the same thing. Like they are just those. And, and the rest of the time you can do whatever you want. So it's yeah. seven minutes. So again, I don't really do that, but maybe it's helpful to someone. I, I love that. I asked this question, a similar question to somebody that was on the show. His uh, name is Joel Weldon. He's been happily married for 57 years. He's a speaking hall of fame legend, 79 years old, old enough to water ski. And so if you want to listen to that episode and hear that, but his advice that he told me, I don't know if this was on the podcast or if this is me just hanging out with him otherwise, but he said the number one secret to his success for 57 years of marriage was the words, yes, dear. Oh, <laughs> um, sure. and, and so, so, yeah, so, so you actually, when you, when, when Mr. AJ Jacobs says that that's a classic and then that one works, uh, there's some credibility and weight behind that because another <laughs> one of your experiments is, is spending a full month fulfilling all of the wishes uh, for your for your wife and saying yes to everything that she said. And I was kind of curious as to what what has survived from that month of you saying yes to everything since it's been a while since you've you've done that experiment. Right. And that experiment came about because I actually got a lot of suggestions from readers saying, you know, you you're putting your wife through all this misery with your experiments. <laughs> Why don't you do a month of just being the perfect husband, doing whatever she wants. And so, you know, the usual that you might expect, the, the foot rubs, the watching the Kate Hudson movies or whatever. So I did it. I did it. And it was, you know, at times incredibly painful. Uh, I would say some of the, the takeaways that I still have are, uh, to echo what I said before, realizing what that I take for granted a lot of what she did around the house. And I didn't even notice it was invisible, like you said, like like the um, liquid soap dispensers. I just, I always thought somehow they just magically refilled, but no. Uh, so when I was, you know, we, we made a list of everything we did around the house and I couldn't believe all of the the projects and tasks that I, that were just happening without my knowledge. So it did make me more grateful. And, and I actually had to take some of those tasks on myself. So that, that was an unfortunate uh, side effect uh, because I, once I knew about them I, I, and once she realized what she was doing that I was taking for granted, then I had to step up. But, uh, but overall, I think it's made our marriage better. Yeah, that's great. I would highly recommend anybody, any of AJ's books, but, but the stuff that, you know, it's just, you could tell that you guys just have such an incredible relationships with, with the jokes that she plays. And at the, my favorite part of that chapter in the book was where Julie actually wrote her side of the story. You finally let her write a little bit and, 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 and explain, you know, her perspective <laughs> of the shit that you put her through, which was, which was really cool. Um, so on, on a similar topic with, with family, I wanted to ask you this question in a different frame than the way you've probably been asked it. So I'm sure you're asked all the time, like of all the experiments that you've done, like which ones stick the most. So I, I want to kind of ask that question, but I want to try asking it a little bit differently. And so I want to put you in the frame of mind that you're, you're giving advice to your kids. Like, like the, this is what you have to pass on to your children. Um, and so what, did, what advice would you give them after all the experiments that you've given that you would want to make sure that they continued on with their lives? Oh, I love that. Uh, some of it we've we've mentioned before this idea of gratitude and trying to to notice those thousands of in, invisible uh, things that go right every day instead of focusing on the three or four that go wrong. Uh, that I think would be a big one. Um, what else would I tell my kids? Uh, 
I would say uh, one of the paradoxes I've noticed of life is that, you know, in my 20s, I was so focused on my own success and my own happiness. And the weird thing is being so focused on my own happiness was making me miserable uh, because Mm -hmm. every setback was like the end of the world. So weirdly, uh, I find it easier to be happy when I'm focusing on other people, when I'm trying to help someone else or, or thinking, you know, how, how can this book or how can this podcast be most helpful to others? And then it sort of takes the pressure off and you can be happy. There's a good feeling about helping others. And you're not so self-obsessed that, um, that every curveball sends you spiraling. So I would, yeah, I would say to them, uh, it's not only a nice thing to do to focus on other people, but it, from just a purely uh, hap- your own happiness, it, it's a smart thing to do. Mm. Love that. Any 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 health tips that you think would come up for for them, or are those the two two main things that you would want to make sure that they got, or any oh, well, any other any any things that span across other other projects? Sure. Yeah, I did a book on health, and and I would say the um, yeah yeah in terms of health, a lot of it is the stuff that we all know, but not many of us do, which is uh, having a close knit group of family and friends is incredibly helpful for your physical and mental health, sleep, stress, eating real food instead of processed food, moving. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to go to the gym, but you do have to move. So do whatever exercise you like, you know, do, even if it's like walking or, or, you know, building a wall in your backyard, uh, physical activity. But I would say the other key I try to tell them and uh, people is uh, you've got to figure out ways to motivate yourself to, to follow these, um, these healthy habits. So the, the key is not just knowing it, but figuring out how to do it. And, uh, you know, I have five or six methods that work well for me. One of them is, is just the micro goals. I love micro goals because uh, which means, you know, instead of saying to myself in the morning, oh, man, I got to walk 10,000 steps, uh, I say, you know what, I'm just going to put on my sneakers. That's that's it. And we'll see what happens. And then I put on my sneakers. I have a little momentum. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to get on the treadmill for one minute. I'm not not uh, promising anything more than a minute. But you're on a minute. You're like, you know what, I'm here. Let me try to do half an hour. And it is... Uh, I find that incredibly helpful. Yeah, I love that. And just because we're kind of on the topic, one of the facts that I shared with my wife that that, that you shared, I, don't, I think it was a presentation that you gave, but it was uh, chewing your food more, that you're supposed to chew your food more. Not that this is something that you would want to impart. I mean, it's a nice thing to impart on your kids. So maybe we'll move this <laughs> move this outside of your category. But um, tell us, tell, I, I don't want to ruin the punchline for you, but tell us the name of the movement on, on chewing your food more effectively. <laughs> oh yeah, well, there's... Uh, there's a few names. I mean, one is called like um, Judaism. They like get <laughs> that was the one I really, love so much. <laughs> that's it. And Orthodox Judaism is if you're really into it, like 100 chews per mouthful, which is crazy. Uh, but I, I do think I think you mentioned one of your previous guests talked about slow. What was it? Slow 
Slow, uh, yes. So the power of slow and the power of savoring and, and you know, actually tasting the food that you're eating. Uh, so I do see some, uh, you know, I don't chew a hundred times per mouthful, which is just insane. But I do think the general gist of chewing more and, and tasting the food, savoring it, there is something uh, valuable there. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful in your time. So I know we're kind of coming up, but I know one of the, there, there's one main topic I want to cover and then if, maybe a few rapid fire questions, but you have a new project that you're working on, which is always exciting. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about the puzzles book and I, you think you have a new podcast coming out with James Altucher, if that's not already been published or tell us a little bit about the, the newest projects you have going on. Sure. Yeah. The, the book is uh, coming out next year from Random House. It's called The Puzzler. A quest to solve the hardest puzzles puzzles ever, from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life, and uh, and I've always loved puzzles, so I've been embedding with these brilliant people who are the best at solving many different kinds of puzzles, whether it's word puzzles, Sudoku, or you know people who do the Rubik's cube in three point four seconds with their feet, you know, just like and and I've loved it. And, and, and I'm hopeful it's not just, I, my point is partially that puzzles are fun, but they're not trivial, that they teach us how to think and they teach us how to solve problems, big problems. And we have a lot of big problems in the world. So hopefully uh, this will help us uh, be better thinkers and be more curious. I think that that curiosity, there's a, uh, I read a book on parenting that said, uh, don't get furious, get curious. And I love that. So uh, that's one of the keys to puzzles. And I think of to life. Yeah, well, I'm super excited to work on that. This is just, I want to chase a rabbit hole really quickly here. How do you, how do you choose which projects to work on? Because it's like, I'm sure you have so many guests that, that are people that are submitting requests to do it. So what, what was it about this particular topic that you felt like you needed to do it now? And how do you sort through the list of what to actually dedicate your time to? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it has to check uh, a few different boxes. One, I have to be passionate about it which I am. I love puzzles. I, I think it has to have um, a deeper meaning and purpose that will help people's life, which I, I do think puzzles do. Um, and I think it has to have commercial uh, viability. And and I think, you know, the number of people obsessed with puzzles, you know, it's million billions. So, uh, so all those boxes were ticked and I was like, all right, I'm in. Are there any projects that you started that like you, you started committing to, but then you realize like this doesn't have legs and then you stopped or have you, the ones that you decided you've actually end up going through with all. No, of them? no, many, many times I've sort of, you know, bailed a quarter of the way through. I mean, I had this one idea maybe 15, 20 years ago. And it was at the time, it was sort of a novel idea, which was I would only interact with people through electronic media, like, you know, only through Skype, I guess was at the time or text message. Uh, and now, you know, that's, I've been our life <laughs> that's our for world. the last year. <laughs> so it is, but, but I didn't ever, I didn't finish that project because it was just, my wife was so opposed to it. Uh, and she's like, this is a nightmare. Uh, we, cause we did have kids at the time. And I was like trying to read yeah. them 
bedtime stories over video chat. They were not yeah. Happy. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so we'll do a few kind of like rapid fire one. I don't typically do this, but they, like there's a bunch of things I just kind of wanted to hear you talk about them because they sound so interesting. So maybe if you can kind of just briefly share your experience on these things. How was it to be on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? <laughs> uh, I had a great time. Very, you know, it was weird. I thought it would be more stressful, but once I was in the chair, I was having a great time. I did not win a million dollars. I I got up to the 32,000 or 64,000. I can't remember. And I blew it. So I went back down to a thousand. But, um, but again, it's that idea of being okay with sort of putting yourself out there and knowing that not, it doesn't always, you're not going to win a million every time. Yeah. And technically, technically it was your brother-in-law's fault, if I remember correctly on, on, on why you lost millionaire. So we can partially, partially bring him, you guys had equal, equal blame for, for not well, getting a million dollars. Yeah. But I had read, I had just read the encyclopedia. So I had I read the answer to the problem. So I should have. <laughs> sure. Awesome. Uh, another random thing. So I, I came across my research that the, the book Einstein by Walter Isaacson almost killed you. Can you tell us that story oh, really yeah. quickly? Well, I, I wrote about, that in a, uh, a chapter about multitasking and the dangers of multitasking. And I remember I was driving. I'm not a great driver to begin with, but I was listening to his audiobook and I was so fascinated. I was like, this is more interesting than the road. And we veered off and jumped the median and we're lucky to be alive. Damn, that is that is crazy. So you just swerved back and things were all good. There had there just didn't happen to be a car coming by, and you just of course no, no. It was like a full on. on like police came and uh, oh my gosh, were, yeah, yeah. We had to be towed and all that, but no one hit us. We were lucky. No one, no one hit us. Wow. Well, I, I guess um, Einstein Einstein was out to get you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, other other random story I want to get uh, there. You tell a story of you were at a book festival in Texas and there was a guy who wrote passages of his book on his t-shirt in magic marker of your book on magic marker on his t-shirt. So what was your reaction to that? Oh, <laughs> when, I loved it. I thought up, it was you hilarious. Like you know, I'm uh, you know, maybe I should have been scared. Uh, and I remember I, I told that story to um, a friend of mine who is also a writer and he's like, well, I have fans who get tattoos of my books. And I was like, Oh, well, you beat me. So, uh, <laughs> But yes, I was, I appreciated his enthusiasm. Yeah. Uh, another, another really quick one. How, how big, how cool is it to be able to contribute to the four hour work week? Did you ever, did you ever think that, that your stuff was going to like, can you just quickly set the scene and tell us like what, when, when Tim reached out to you, you know, what your first initial impressions were and if there was any long lasting impact of your work being in the four hour work week? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he reached out to me, uh, because I had written a book, uh, an article called My Outsource Life, where I hired a team of people in India to do everything for me, from answer my emails to argue with my wife. And he said, he reached out, he said, I'm a first time writer, I'm writing this book about, you know, how to uh, sort of uh, job advice for young people, can I reprint your article? And I was like, well, I've never heard of this guy, this book is probably going to sell like 50 copies. So <laughs> I'm not going to like charge him for it. So I, I was like, sure, reprint it. And then a year later, he calls me up. He's like, just wanted to let you know the book's coming out and it's number one on Amazon. I'm like, what? How did that happen? But it was a testament to what a brilliant marketer he is and, and what a um, uh, how he really figured out 
what people wanted to read and uh, and provided it. And it's been a boon to me. I mean, I am I am glad that uh, I let him have it for free because he's he's got such a wide readership. A lot of readers are first introduced to my work through the four hour work week. Love that. Uh, and and the reason why I'm doing these rapid fire things is so that everybody's listening, like go check out all of AJ's stuff. And like, it's it's hilarious the way he writes about this stuff. So go read, dive deep. So you can, I'm just giving you a, a sampling of, <laughs> of all the incredible things that AJ's done. So last, last random one, you have a 3D printed salt shaker of your son. Can you explain why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wrote an article for the New York Times uh, a few years ago when 3D printing was just starting where I 3D printed my dinner, everything in my dinner. So the plates, my clothes, the, um, the salt shakers, but also the food. We 3D printed a pizza in the shape of Italy with topographically correct mountain ranges. Uh, and it was just a, a wonderful experience and a way to learn about this new technology which you know, will be and continues to be transformative. So yes, it was a little weird to have this um, 3D printed. <laughs> you still use it? Spell. It's so funny. I thought of it yesterday and uh, I meant to go look for it. So I got to get it out. <laughs> Thanks for cool. reminding me. Yeah, there you go. Um, very last question that I've been starting to ask to, to guests because I think it's really important to kind of get the synthesis of knowledge. So as somebody that has done all these experiments, like what does happiness mean to AJ Jacobs these days? Hmm, that's a nice question. I would guess, um, I get, going back to the idea of it's dangerous to focus exclusively on your own happiness. Uh, and it's, I think, a better strategy to look for meaning and attempting to make other people happy. And that paradoxically will make you happier. Yeah. Love that. I won't, I won't add anything on top of that. So just want since I have the guy that's, that's written so much on gratitude, I want to just say to everybody listening right now, if this is your very first episode, I want to say welcome. Super grateful to have you hanging out with me and AJ today. I hope you become a regular listener, subscriber. I bring on incredible people like AJ every week so that we can go deep. And if you're returning, thank you as well. You're what makes this possible. Truly appreciate you. And whether you're new or returning, please just do me a huge favor. You've listened to all the incredible insights that AJ has shared and all of his incredible work. If you have a friend that wants to have a laugh and learn about how many nipples opossums have or, <laughs> or, or, or learn about all the other incredible things that AJ shared today, just, just share this episode with a friend that you think would put a smile on their face. And my life has absolutely been changed by podcasts that have been shared with me. So please share AJ's stuff um, so that we can get more of the workout word out on his stuff. So AJ, thank you so much for coming. This has been an absolute blast. And thank you for doing the work that you do, my friend. Thank you. And right back at you. And thank you for your insights on uh, reaching out to people. That was great. Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week 
just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, 5 to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.